Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Douglas Slane. His team's research on characteristics and predictors of patient care performed by clinical pharmacy department chairpersons at U.S. Schools of Pharmacy. And it was published in the November 2021 issue of JACCP. Dr. Slane is an infectious disease clinical specialist and chair and professor of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at West Virginia University. Doug, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jerry. It's a pleasure for me to be on the podcast today. Now, first, first off, I want to thank you and your co-authors for sending your work to JCCP. I was interested because like you and your co-authors, uh, I too at one point in time in my career was a head of a practice department in the College of Pharmacy. So perhaps you could begin by telling the listeners the purpose of your study and any pertinent background and how you went about it. Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm a, a relatively, I guess, newer department chair. I became department chair roughly about three years ago. And uh, I was at a session that was really uh, geared toward department chairs at one of the AACP meetings. And I've known a bunch of, of department chairs for years. Uh, and we got to talking, we had a discussion because I, I was talking about in my agreement that I signed to become department chair, I wanted to maintain a clinical practice. The prior two chairs that we had at my institution and at, at other institutions where I trained, it was usually foreign for uh, a department chair to maintain a clinical practice. And uh, we had a discussion that came out of that, you know, roughly, you know, who, who's practicing, who isn't, you know, how common. And nobody really knew any national trends. So we formed a group of, uh, you know, Jeff Goad and uh, Lynette Moser and Amy Seibert. They're all uh, three department chairs that I have great respect for. And I've been wanting to do a project with each of them. Uh, so we set out to look at this, to describe what's going on nationally, how often do department chairs in clinical pharmacy maintain a clinical practice, because they're all of a sudden given a large administrative commitment. So in terms of what the study was, it was designed to be uh, a survey-based study, and we wanted to get feedback. We wanted to make sure that we received a good amount. So we really scaled this survey down uh, as much as possible to enhance return rate. And what the goals of the study were, really two parts. The first part was just roughly to get an estimate of how many department chairs across the country uh, maintain some kind of clinical practice. And that would be very descriptive. They would tell us a little bit about it. And then the second part, we did want to test uh, to see if there were any associations with with factors in their in their job descriptions or where they are in tenure. So we had some variables we thought could maybe have a relationship with who's practicing and who's not. So it was really kind of a two-part study with that in mind. So it's interesting. Uh, I found it interesting. How, how do you how could you uh, summarize the findings and conclusions? And also, were you surprised by any of the findings? Uh, there actually were some surprises. If the listeners go to the article, most of the results will appear in two tables. Uh, the first table really provides a lot of the, the descriptive factors where we compared you know, chairs that had a clinical practice 
you know, characteristics about them versus the chairs uh, without a clinical practice. In terms of any major differences, we found four things that were statistically significant. Uh, number one, which is not surprising, is if their contract stated that clinical service was an expectation, you know, that was clearly associated with people that maintained a practice. Uh, also, a lot of times uh, faculty members have a job description that talks about a percent effort in an area. So folks that had higher percent expectations under service or clinical service specifically, they tended to practice more. So that's not surprising, I don't think. Uh, administrative percentages, we did see an association there. So the people that had a higher percent administrative expectation, they were you know, less likely to practice. And then one other factor we noticed is if you practiced right before you became a department chair, those folks were, had a higher percentage of folks that maintained a practice. So those were some of the, the trends that we saw. Uh, we were surprised that there was not a statistical difference in tenure versus non-tenure track. We would have assumed that non-tenure track folks might actually practice more than tenure track, and that did not end up showing itself. Um, and then if we get to the kind of the second part of the results, that's where we tried to look at, you know, description on those folks that practiced. So in the survey, if you said that you practiced, you actually completed additional questions. So the second set of results really described things from those additional questions. Uh, they asked questions about practice area. And most, the majority of people were actually in acute care hospital or community practice, which was listed separately from AMCARE primary care. So we think some of these folks might have been involved in certain drugstore-based clinics or, or maybe even health fairs or things like that. Uh, other things we asked about with the additional questions were what was the role in practice? Did they provide it directly or did they provide supervision to others like residents or students to provide the care? And this was not a mutually exclusive category. Our data, we found that 81.8% of those that maintained a practice said that they actually performed direct patient care. And 61, roughly 61% of individuals said that they also provided care by supervising others. In terms of how chairs did their work, you know, there was a mixture of they did their service uh, yearly through more of a longitudinal path, and some did more block. Uh, when we looked at some of the median times, if we looked at the folks that did year round service, they were roughly, the median was about one day per week. Now, one finding we, that we did find uh, that was pretty interesting is that 23% of faculty actually receive funding to provide clinical service, even as department chairs. So, you know, that um, would clearly recommend that somebody would maintain a clinical practice. So uh, we found that kind of surprising in our results. Yeah, I was, I was surprised that the, um, the tenure versus non-tenure uh, that there was no difference there. But I'm guessing that probably the chairs that were non-tenure track, probably the whole department was non-tenure track because they couldn't act on tenure decisions then. I, I was also surprised as an outlier, I guess, one poor department chair 
was responsible for 32 students a year, which yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a heavy load even for a regular clinical faculty. So I just want to add, so just so uh, the listeners know, you know, before they read the article, uh, so that person, we, you know, we don't have, we didn't maintain a lot of specific details because we wanted that survey to be very scaled down so that they would fill it out because we know how busy department chairs are. So we didn't get a lot of detail that maybe would have explained that, but I will tell the listeners that patient care services could have even been through the provision of supervising others. It could have included IPPE. So that person, without knowing for sure, that could have been somebody that supervised students at a health fair or maybe through an IPPE type of learning experience. So that might explain the other thing I was surprised about, and that was the most common practice site that was listed was community pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. Which, which was surprising to me. I thought it would be in a hospital or ambulatory care setting or something. How, how was this explained and how did you find it? So again, we, we didn't collect a lot of a detailed information. The um, surveillance had the categories. There was another category that was specifically called ambulatory care, primary care, which would imply more clinic-based. So if they picked community practice, you know, without knowing specifically, we would have assumed that they're talking more about something maybe in maybe an underserved, almost like health fair environment or related to maybe uh, a pharmacy or some other thing. Maybe they're giving, you know, vaccines. Now, the interesting, the timing of this survey actually occurred uh, at the early in the COVID pandemic, but that was before we really started getting active with the vaccinations, but uh, it was something that was starting around the time that we did this, the survey. So how would you uh, contrast this with our colleagues in medicine that are department heads or chairs? So it's difficult. Uh, even when we looked at what is in the medical literature about physician department chairs, there's really limited data I mean, we can see at each of our institutions, we saw that that most department chairs clearly had clinical service uh, because all of us are, except for Jeff Goad, the other three of us are at academic medical centers. I mean, Jeff might be actually, but his clinical practice is actually in travel medicine. So he, he may have a different lens to look at this. But anyway, the literature is not clear with the physicians. It's clouded by the fact that oftentimes RVUs and billing are part of their salary. And I referenced, or we referenced two studies in our article. One looked at data from family medicine. Uh, in that study, there were roughly 19% of individuals that maintained direct clinical practice as family practitioners. And then we had another article that we referenced that involved the surgical department chairs. And there, there were you know, roughly 63% of those in, those department chairs still did surgery. Uh, there was actually a little bit of a higher percent that showed up at clinic for one reason or another. So you know, our percentage is kind of in between those two percentages. So it's just really difficult to make a comparison. And I think because the RVU piece is something that, that most pharmacy folks don't have. However, we were surprised by that, the fact that, you know, 22% of the pharmacy chairs actually receive funding to provide clinical service. So how do you think the increase in new schools of pharmacy impacted your results? We believe that 
if you look at a lot of the new schools, you tend to see department chairs that did not do fellowship training, weren't folks that did a lot of research, but our survey really really couldn't show us much and we really couldn't collect a lot of the specific data. We de-identified the data when the when the survey was initially filled out so that we were in a preferred status with the IRBs. So we weren't able to map it back and really look at it in depth. If we do a follow-up study or if someone else does, I think there are some questions that we would like to know. And this would be one of them. We kind of eyeballed some of the results and we couldn't find a clear suggestion that newer schools had more or less practice. But again, we, we can't say for certain with the data that we finally reported. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I would have personally been interested to see the results broken down in the, in the type of institution. For example, research intensive or not, public versus private, those affiliated with uh, tightly affiliated with the academic medical center. So do you plan to do some follow-up studies with those type of questions in mind? We totally agree with those questions, or I'm sorry, those points. We would like to know that data. Uh, we we are not currently surveying anybody, but we are talking about a, a part two as an option. And all of the points that you brought up are factors we would like to know more about. Additional things that we, we probably consider would be things like gender, uh, specifically uh, competitive funding like NIH funding. And um, another thing that some of the listeners may not know is that some schools actually have like a term limits or revolving department chairs. This is not as common, but there are a few schools out there that do that. And we clearly think that that could impact who maintains a practice as well. We did not survey that as a question. But if you think about it, somebody that is a department chair for three years and then can be voted off, they're going to go back to whatever they were doing before they were department chair. Uh, these are some of the things that we would probably include in a, in a second analysis. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, some of it's going to depend on the overall governance of the university that they're in. And as you point out, I mean, some chairs are rotating. They have a a certain term that, that they're chair, and then they're back in their uh, regular job as a professor or a clinician or whatever. So what do you think? I mean, last, as a, as a chair, I'd be interested in, in your personal opinion. Should a chair have clinical responsibilities? So that is a great question. And when we were writing up this article, we were wondering if we, if we should be aspirational and kind of take a stance and, and make a recommendation. And if the listeners read the article, they'll see, you know, we, we do think that if you can do it and you want to do it, we believe there's value in it. Even some of the literature in medical literature even talk about serving as a role model and having a shared experience with your faculty. So, you know, I personally wanted to do it. I, I was actually reluctant to put my hat in for department chair when it came available because I was afraid that I would have to give up my practice, something that I really enjoy doing. Someday down the road, I, I might be fine with not doing it as much, but uh, I'm still very passionate about it. And for me, it was the right decision. I did get the approval of my dean, which I think you have to have that, or it could create some problems. And then another thing that people should consider, especially the longer 
that they might be in a department chair. And if they're not keeping engrossed in, in clinical matters is, you know, they have to know if they are keeping up their competency in the area that they're practicing. So uh, that's not something we got into in our article, but, you know, it's something that, that has to be considered too. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I was, as I mentioned, I was a department head and uh, I went into it with the intent of maintaining some type of practice and, and my research program, <laughs> both of which, both of those hopes were dashed <laughs> uh, just because of the administrative burden. So it kind of, waned over time over that uh, decade in which I was in that position. But thanks very much. I mean, we'll look forward to uh, follow-up studies on this. And um, thanks again for for sending this fine paper to JCCP. Thanks, Doug. Thank you very much.